0: I'd like to talk tonight about uh, the emotion of fear, and the factor of fear in our lives. And I feel that it's one of the most um, fundamental things that we need to come to terms with, both in our life and in our practice. You could say that there are really these two fundamental movements of mind, of fear on the one hand and wanting on the other. And they arise in relation to, let's say, the two main poles of our feeling life, which are pleasure and pain. And you look at the activities of humans all around the world, over centuries and centuries, our movements, our activities, our whole thrust in life is basically, 99% of the time, a move to uh, create more pleasure and to avoid pain in life. And as you see the kind of thoughts that come up in a few days of a meditation retreat, you'll find that the thoughts also tend to revolve around these two factors, pleasure and pain. And of course the desire, the wanting force, arises in relation to pleasure. We want to bring into our life that which is pleasurable. Fear arises in regard to that which may be painful. So between these two poles our thoughts go. And because our thoughts go that way, our motives go that way. Because our, mo- our motives go that way, our intentions go that way. Because our intentions go that way, our actions go that way. Because our actions go that way, our lives go that way. Around these two factors. And fear is one of our deepest conditionings. It... Um, Present in many, many forms in our life. From from small to the big. You know, that there are the little fears that come up in life, like I hope they remember to put uh, honey out with the tea today. And uh fears like I, I hope the car will start on a winter's morning. I hope that pain in the knee won't come up again during this sitting. And there's there are the big fears, fear of uh, pain, physical pain, fear of rejection, like close friendship or relationship, fear of failure, many, many aspects of our life, fear of unhappiness, fear of never finding contentment in our life, fear of dying, going. and maybe the biggest of all, really, for most of us, the fear of life fear of all the complexity involved in this process of living. And when fear is present in the mind, it really casts a very dark shadow. It's as though we live with fear, we live under a a dark cloud of uh, anxiety, worry, apprehension. And when the fear is there, even though it may be bright and sunny out, that sort of can't come into the heart. The heart can't really open to the beauty and and the joys that life can bring. And the fear leads to a sense of contraction, of closeness. Our whole spirit kind of shrinks under the influence of fear. There was a science fiction book that was very popular in the late 60s, I don't know if you came upon it, called Dune. And uh, Dune was written by a fellow named Frank Herbert. And in it he describes uh, life on another planet and a band of warriors who trained by working with their minds through mind-altering uh, drugs, very appropriate for the late 60s. You can imagine it received a cult following in the uh, sort of hippie era. And one of the one of the key lessons that these warriors had to learn to work with was the factor of fear. And they expressed it in this way: they said that fear is the great mind killer. And when fear is present, it keeps the mind from flowering from opening up and so in our lives in our practice it prevents each one of us from from unfolding as people from opening up the the positive um, strengths that are within us, the stability of mind and openness affection and so forth all of that is lost in the influence of fear it also leads us to a sense of isolation can't open to other people acting under this this influence. Some people consider that the opposite of love is hatred. But I would say rather that the true opposite of love is fear. In that when, when fear disappears in the mind, even for a brief period, when fear is absent, love is naturally there. Love comes naturally. We don't have to do anything in our practice to create love and affection. Rather, in dealing with the negative states, working through them, understanding them, (coughs) coming to some freedom from them, the positive qualities are automatically present. Love is there within each of us and would come out if it weren't for for the cloud of fear. There's a very interesting book. don't know if you've come upon it, called A Course in Miracles, which um, had a very interesting origin. This uh, psych- psychologist in America, a woman in her middle ages, suddenly started hearing these thoughts running through her mind. And she thought, oh, this is very strange. I don't usually have these words sort of going through my mind. And she was just a clinically trained psychologist, she wasn't um, into anything spiritual at all. And she thought, well, this is going on and on. I'll, I'll, I'll start writing it down. You know, if I write a page or two, maybe that will clear it out. About 1,100 pages later, <laughs> she um, found she had this book <laughs> called, that she ended up calling her, it was called A Course in Miracles. And um, all the writing just came out of her quite automatically. And it was as though she was serving as a medium for some other voice. Whether she was or not, I don't know. But this is the feeling that uh, she had with it. And she didn't particularly believe in mediums. She didn't even want to write the stuff down. But it was going through her head somewhat she felt she had to. And when she finished and read the book, she found it actually had a lot of very uh, good good wisdom in it, a lot of good dharma. It's sort of put in Christian terms, but it's got what I feel is a very universal expression of, of the dharma, the teachings. And uh, an American psychologist has taken this 1,300 pages and shrunken it down a bit to make it sort of more palatable. And he's gotten the essence of it onto the best list in the States with a book that sums up part of the central message of A Course in Miracles. And his book is called Love is Letting Go of Fear. And it's his, ho- his whole approach to developing beings is that working with one's fear and coming to, to let go of it love naturally flowers love is always there and fear i feel is also the root of aggression if you know people who have a lot of anger a lot of uh, hostility express it in some form of violence either physical or psychological you'll find if you look closely into that person that, that what's underneath it is fear there's something about the contracting quality of fear that almost makes us um, worry for our very existence. It's as though we're afraid of being squeezed out of existence somehow. And under that kind of imploding energy, the only way sometimes, if it's very extreme to cope, is to explode with some form of violence. So there's an explosive kind of energy is generally a a reaction to the contraction of fear. So, very closely aligned to aggression, which is another of the very fundamental movements of the mind. So, I'd like to talk this evening about how to work with fear. How do we work with it in our practice? How can we become free from it? really to become free of fear takes understanding. It's really only insight, only wisdom that can effectively remove fear from my life. And in coming to understand fear, the um, Indian philosopher who just died last year, Krishnamurti, I felt had, had some of the most interesting things to say about it. He summed up his understanding of this um, problem in one short phrase. He said, Thought breeds fear. So if we want to find out where fear comes from, we look into our thoughts. Thought breeds fear. And you can begin to see this in your in your practice. but the emotion of fear is generally preceded by the imagination of some unpleasant circumstances situation. so there's a real liberating potential in that we create our own fears we generate them out of our own thoughts so it's not that life is always frightening not that life is inherently a scary business it may be uncertain it may be insecure we may not be able to find any sort of Fixed outer security in this life because everything's changing. But that doesn't mean that we have to approach it with fear. Even though there's uncertainty, we don't have to bring a fearful mind to that state. There's no reason to be afraid of something we don't know. How can we be afraid of the unknown? So we have to begin to see the the influence of our own mind in creating fear for ourselves. We need to begin to take responsibility for it. So I think what happens in in this breeding of fear is that we are looking for security in our lives. We want our lives to be safe and secure. So in order to make that happen, we sort of think about the worst things that could happen to us. Want to make the future really safe, so we dwell on all the things that could go wrong. And then, of course, we try to figure out strategies for working with each of them. And these strategies um, sometimes work, but sometimes don't. And there's a little story that um, kind of illustrates the effect of strategies. The story is that they, um, the jungle, and a camel was going for her morning walk and uh, she was approaching the edge of this jungle and uh, inside the jungle was a tiger and the tiger saw the camel coming heard it chomping and the tiger thought ah this sheep camel is going to walk into this jungle and when she does when she gets close to me i will spring out at her and catch her and she will be my breakfast. So the tiger's just waiting there. It's got its strategy figured out for the morning. It's waiting to pounce on the camel. But up above in a tree is a monkey. And the monkey sees the camel walking. And he sees the tiger moving into position. And he thinks, ah, the camel is going to walk into the jungle. And then the tiger is going to jump out and eat it. But. I have this coconut which I will drop on the head of the tiger when it starts to jump, and it won't be able to get the camel. So the monkey's waiting there with this coconut, ready to drop it on the head of the tiger. But there's a little squirrel on a branch a few feet away from the monkey who sees. There's a camel coming into the forest. The tiger is getting ready to jump on it, but that monkey is holding the coconut to drop on the tiger so that it won't be able to get the camel. But just before the monkey is going to drop the coconut, I'm going to bite the monkey so that he can't drop the coconut. The camel, meanwhile, is still walking slowly towards the jungle. And there's a, there's a bird, a very large bird, <laughs> that is flying over the jungle at this point. He sees the camel coming, he sees the tiger poised, he sees the monkey with the coconut, and he sees the squirrel about to leave. And he thinks, ah, the camel's going to walk So he says, um, just before the squirrel goes to bite the monkey, I will swoop down and pick up the squirrel and fly off with it. So it can't bite the monkey. The monkey will drop the coconut on the tiger's head and the tiger can't leap the camel and the camel will have her walk through the forest. Meanwhile, the camel is still walking slowly toward the start of the jungle path. And she gets just to the opening of the jungle and she thinks, I think I've had enough of a walk. (laughs) And she turns around and walks back the other way. So much for strategy. So we we think of all these complications that can arise in our lives. And often they get that complicated, don't they? We think of all the things that could happen and go wrong and we make plans for each of them. And we think we've got the future worked out. But what we ignore is what we're doing in the present. The future may be a little more secure, but what about right now? And the present is becoming filled with fear. We're filling it up with anxiety. So when can we ever stop doing that? When can we get to the secure future? When can we stop worrying about the future? Can we ever? Or is there always something else that can go wrong? Don't we sort of always need to keep planning ahead if we're going to live in this way? So this particular strategy becomes sort of self-defeating. We need to see how we create this fear for ourselves. And in seeing this generation, then we can start to um, do something about it. When these thoughts come along, we can see where they lead and say, no, no thanks, I won't go into that right now. Second understanding that needs to come in working with fear is that truly the root a fear in the mind is attachment, holding, clinging. And we hold, we depend on many, many different objects in our lives. We hold on to people. We hold on to possessions. We hold on to money. We cling to views and opinions. We hold on to a self-image. We hold on to this body. Wherever there's holding for security, there's going to be fear, there's inevitably fear. Because we always know that we can lose that thing. We, we pick something up in the beginning because we're frightened, and holding on to that thing makes us feel safe, whether it's a relationship or an object or a view or whatever. But as long as we're holding it in order to feel safe, there's always a fear of loss. It has to be. So holding for security doesn't eliminate fear. It makes sure that the fear goes on and on and on. It perpetuates fear. So clinging is no way out of fear. Finding security in anything outside ourselves only makes the fear go on. And when there's that attachment in the mind, it creates the possibility of shakiness, mental shakiness. And the Buddha often referred to this in uh, discussions in his lifetime. Northern India at the time of the Buddha was um, rich with um, a diverse uh, range of spiritual views. It was rich with spiritual characters, uh, some real eccentric. Christina mentioned last night that Jain, who was standing on his leg, hoping to work through all his karma in that way another approach to working with uh, karma was carried on by other sects in northern India see people were afraid that um, even though they had a human life this time that next time they they believed in reincarnation they were worried that they might be born as an animal because this is one of the teachings of reincarnation and um, the idea being that if they're karma, if their actions in this life weren't so pure, they would have to be born in a lower uh, level and then suffer the consequences of that unwholesome karma. So some people thought they would get around this by living out their dog karma in this life. And so there were actually people who went around (coughs) behaving like dogs for the course of their lifetime, hoping they could sort have of get it out of their system, and uh, then they'd be free of that particular karma. Lost views. So the Buddha often had discussions with these people, came to question him about his views. He would often say afterwards, after he'd had a discussion with them, he would say, I saw in that person's mind as he discussed his view, there was wavering. He said, because of that wavering in his mind, I could tell there was attachment. But he said, You, oh monks, you know, I watched you in that discussion, I could see there was no wavering in your mind. There was no attachment to the view that you were talking about. So wherever we find in our life this quality of wavering of hesitancy of uncertainty doubt fear anxiety, we know that someplace there's holding there's attachment and really fear can't um, can't really become free of fear until we become free of these various forms of holding so in the in the long run that's the the key to getting free of fear and this whole issue of of attachment and the creation of thoughts through fear is brought out in this um, a discussion that Krishnamurti had with someone who was dying. This fellow was dying; he knew he was dying, and he was very concerned about what was going to happen to him after his death. And he was convinced that Krishnamurti had the answer, absolutely certain that Krishnamurti knew, but knew, but just wasn't telling him. And so. Um, this is the, the response that Krishnamurti gives. The man's question is, Do I continue after death, or is there nothing left when the body dies? Krishnamurti says, What is this me that your mind clings to and that you want to be continued? The me exists only through identification with property, with a name, with the family, with failures and successes with all the things you have been and want to be you are that with which you have identified yourself you are made up of all that and without it you are not it is this identification with people property and ideas that you want to be continued even beyond death and is it a living thing or? Is it just a mass of contradictory desires, pursuits, fulfillment, and frustrations, with sorrow outweighing joy? Clinging to the root of the fear. But in the meantime, while we find we have these attachments, while we find there is holding in the mind, and the fear is arising, how to work with it in a more practical, day-to-day way? in our meditation practice what to do with fear when it comes up the really important thing in working with fear in meditation is to come to know it first of all and secondly to accept it and what does this mean when fear comes up we really have to investigate what is fear now, i wonder if you've ever really looked into this question have you ever Sort of hung out with fear long enough to find out what it really is? Or every time fear comes, do you seek to find something else to take its place, to distract yourself from the experience? Through meditation, we have this wonderful opportunity of getting directly in touch with fear. And you may think that, well, I've come to a meditation retreat to be. Calm and clear and peaceful, and the last thing I want is to be sitting on my cushion and be full of fear. But actually, you're very, very lucky if that arises for you. You're very lucky because it's only when an emotion comes up in the present moment that we have any chance to work with it, to understand it. We can't really understand emotions at a distance. We can't sort of sit here with our books and our papers and figure out how we're going to be free of fear, we have to work with the living reality. And the Zafu is a very good place to do it on. Because you know, basically, when fear comes up in a sitting, nothing's really going to happen to you. You're going to get up at the end of that sitting and you're going to walk out of the room. You're not going to be any poorer, or worse off, or in any danger. It's a pretty safe place, right? So it's a very, very good place to start coming to terms with fear, to start to experience it. So fear arises and we look in and it we want to find out what is it. What is fear? Okay. It really has two components. It's an expression in the body, and a certain manifestation in the body. It has another expression in the mind. And so we need to come to terms to come to understand both those expressions. So, in the body, often we first feel fear in the pit of the stomach. There's a sort of very shaky, fluttery feeling in the stomach. The whole body may begin to be light and feel kind of trembly throughout. There may be an increase in the heartbeat, heart starts going faster. The breath may become jerky, it may be perspiration under the arms. And all these are the various physical sensations that tell us fear is coming up. I'm experiencing fear. Now are any of these sensations intolerable? Are there any of them that we can't handle? You know, can you handle a fluttery stomach? yeah, no big deal can you handle your heart going a little faster? that's okay, it's happening can you handle some sweat under your eyes? yeah one, nobody's too close to you so on the physical level there's really nothing that difficult about fear we just have to get comfortable with these physical sensations on the mental level Again, there's an emotional tone in the mind. There's this sort of fleeing quality it comes up and we kind of want to run the other way. It's a, it's a kind of restlessness, a kind of moving away. Um, but we can get to know that, too, just as you probably found in the early days. You can sit through restlessness. You can take it. You can experience it, and it's okay. We can bring the same kind of willingness to fear if we're just willing to to be there for it, and experience it. And eventually, we find that we can accept it. We find that it's really okay for that fear to be there. And then we have a whole new relationship to it. We can accommodate the fear. We can have it be present, and we don't have to react to it. Because normally, what's the first thing that we do when we experience fear. What's the first emotion that we feel at the arising of fear? Isn't it generally more fear? We're afraid of fear itself. So when fear arises, we don't want to experience it, we're more afraid. And this leads to a chain reaction. Then we're in a greater state of fear and it starts getting into panic. they were really overwhelmed. R.D. Lang, who's a Scottish uh, psychoanalyst, had a book called Knots, a little short book that he wrote in the early 70s, which illustrated the various kinds of binds that we get into through our, the complication of our thinking, the way we tie ourselves into knots. And about fear, he had this to say that we are afraid of the faith. That is afraid of the faith that is afraid of the faith that is afraid one may perhaps speak of reflection once we're not afraid of fear then when it arises we don't generate any more fear in relation to it we can have the fear be there and yet there's an underlying sense that it's okay so there's an underlying trust and faith with the fear And when that gets strong, when that accommodating power gets strong, then the fear can be present and it doesn't really disturb our actions. You know, if you're feeling afraid and you have to act, you have to relate you have to do something in the world, often the actions that come out of fear are are not very skillful. The fear generates a kind of uh, panic quality and often the confusion comes through in the action. But as as our ability grows to accommodate fear, we can have fear in the mind and still act with some clarity, still act with some sanity. Now in working with fear in this way, it has to be a real acceptance. It means you really have to open your heart to the fear. You really have to be willing for it to be there. And it can't be a sort of halfway acceptance you know which is really a kind of subtle resistance for you sort of catch a glimpse of fear out of the corner of your eye and you right fear that's okay fear Yep, fear okay. you can't <clears throat> handle it that way You've really got to be an openness openness to it and that openness is really what starts cutting through the power that fear has over us. When we're no longer afraid of fear, when it really doesn't matter to us if it's present or if it's absent, its whole strength, its hold over us, starts to go. Starts to go. It's exercised this magic over us. We've been enchanted by it for years and years and years because we couldn't handle it. When we find that we can accept it, it starts to lose its power. And as it loses its power, the whole force of its conditioning starts to fall away. And we go into situations where we generally have felt fear and we suddenly ask ourselves, why do I need to feel fear in this situation? There's no, there's no reason for it. It doesn't do any good. Why is it here? And it starts to fall away in situation after situation. And when this happens, you know it opens up real new possibilities in our lives. As it is, most of us, most of us are willing to live to some degree within the barriers that you create for us. And we may think about doing something. We may hear about something that, that interests us. Might be meeting some new person, taking a class, or coming to a meditation retreat. And we think, that would really be good for me to do. That would be very worthwhile. I can see the growth in it. I can see the value for myself. But it's scary. You know, I think about it, it's scary. i better not go too close to that one. And often we make a decision, not even consciously, but we just sort of move our minds away from that area. We stop really considering it because it's scary. And then we block ourselves from that growth, from, from, from the potential in that experience, meeting a new person or going through new experience, whatever it might be. When we become willing to experience the fear, then we're willing to go beyond that barrier. We don't let the fear put us off. We say, right, I can see the value in that. I can see that if I do it, I'm going to be afraid. But I've been afraid lots of times before. I've experienced it many, many times. And I know that's okay. So I'm willing to, to go through that barrier of fear and, and work with that experience and find that value. And then we find as we work in this way that our life starts to open up. We now have sort of a bigger area to live in, to work in, to play in. And our life feels more expansive. And then we're able to take on more challenge. We, and we grow in that way. We can take in more of life. Now we start to expand our field of living, and then what happens? Our frontiers are expanded, we come up against another barrier. Something else that we've never even have considered doing before, now it's a possibility for us. And now again, the fear arises. But we, we have developed more and more faith to just go through that fear. Not to let the fear put us off from the experience. And so, if we continue to live in this way, continue to work with these seeming barriers, life is lived as as a series of increasing challenges and increasing growth. No end to the growth in that way. Whereas, if we just give in to the fear and let it put us off, then it it reinforces our belief in it. it. We give it more strength in that way. So it's very, very important, in meditation and in living, to, to confront these things, to come to uh, terms with them. And uh, the fine, fine tradition of this in Buddhist meditation practice, there's a teacher in the uh, northeast of Thailand, in the early part of the century, named Ajahn Mun. And he came from the Thai uh, forest monastic tradition meaning a community of monks and nuns living in the forest, practicing in the forest. And in the early part of this century, um, life for for forest monks and nuns was quite tough. It wasn't um, in any way easy. The villagers were not rich. There wasn't a lot of food to go around. Medical treatment was scarce. So it was a tough life. But Ajahn Mun was completely devoted to it love the forest style of practice and so what he would do was this monks are pretty portable beings and uh, all they really need to, to get by is their begging bowl so they can go out and collect food in the morning and uh, in Thailand this, this instrument that they call a groat and the groat is kind of like a big umbrella a big round umbrella with a hook on the end and uh, the way you use a grove is that if you're living in the forest, you can stick this big umbrella over uh, the limb of a tree and hang your mosquito net from it. And it's kind of your portable hotel room. So at night, when it's time to sleep, you just crawl under your mosquito net that's draped over your grove. So you've got a place to sleep. When you get up in the morning, you take your begging bowl, you walk to the nearby village, you go through the village and people put rice and curry in your bowl. You come back to your forest you eat your single meal. And then the rest of the day is free from meditation. So you sit and walk and sit and walk in the forest. And this is what Ajahn Man did for a number of years, many years. It was his preferred way of life. And as he became well known in the northeast of Thailand, he had a number of followers and a number of disciples, one of whom was Ajahn Shah mentioned before, who was also the Ajahn Chah was the teacher of Ajahn Sunedo, who's the abbot of the Amrawati and Chittar monasteries in this country. So Ajahn Chah is a disciple of Mun. There's another teacher called Ajahn Mahabua, who's still teaching in the northeastern Thailand in this tradition. So Ajahn Man was apparently a very inspiring God, but he was also a tough a tough monk. He was one tough little fellow and for instance, if his monks had malaria, they were forced to sit in meditation anyway. I don't know if you know malaria, but it's a very unpleasant disease. You're racked with fever and chilled. Extremely gruesome. And the monks would just have to keep sitting in meditation through that. And he felt this built character. Good for the character. And another of his um, teaching methods, he, he encouraged all of his monks to go and live in the forest, and uh, to take their bowl and take their growth and just settle into practicing in the forest. And uh, at this time, in the northeast of Thailand, there were still quite a lot of tigers in the forest there. So these young monks, they might be 20 years old, 25 years old, would go out in the forest, they'd be practicing, and not far away, they'd hear them roar of a tiger in the middle of the night. That brings fear. <laughs> that brings fear. So he'd be shaking, knowing that at any time this tiger could just take a, you know, walk a few steps over and eat them. Literally. Now that's real fear. You think you've got troubles on your office? That's real fear. But he he, he, for- he basically forced them to stick it out and confront their fear. And he said, if you can go through your fear in that situation, your fear of of death, of really being eaten up in that situation, then you really have dealt with fear in your practice. So, not to avoid. But sometimes, to tell the truth, there are things we do need to avoid. Sometimes there are aspects of life that are too Uh, intense or too dangerous. For For instance, there are parts of New York City I would not want to walk through at midnight. Okay? So you have to use some common sense. (laughs) I might be right to feel uneasy parts of the city at that hour. Also, on an emotional level, I think you have to know your limits. And um, in the mid-70s, I was living in California. And the concept of the open marriage was very much involved, the open relationship. There's no possession, there's no attachment, there's no such thing as jealousy, it's just a figment of your imagination. And um, so basically the the, uh, way that it operated in a group of people that uh, I was around at that time was there was no idea of being uh, committed to any particular sexual partner but one basically uh, slept with whoever one felt on that particular day or night like sleeping with. And um, as I look back, I see this was not really very skillful. not very skillful. We had good intentions. We wanted to become free of our jealousy, free of possessiveness. We didn't have much wisdom. And uh, instead, as I look back, instead of freeing us from jealousy, What I see in attachment is that it um, made those patterns more intense because we weren't actually able to work with it at all effectively and it resulted in quite a lot of suffering for for most of us in that group. So instead of um, getting free of the conditioning by confronting the fear, it reinforced it because it simply wasn't a workable situation. It was not workable. So you have to know your own limits as well you need to bring wisdom in this area too now there are a few practical ways to work with meditation when it comes with fear sorry when it comes up in meditation so i'll I'll just suggest a couple of practical ways right now one way is to sort of decondition the energy and in this approach it's best to pick a a quiet place like your room at home someplace you feel uh quite safe and when fear comes up to um, work with relaxation this works best if there are certain uh experiences or or events that can trigger the fear easily for you so what you do is lie down and begin to work with um, deep breathing to bring a sense of relaxation throughout the body so um, deep in breath, deep out breath, just relaxing then when you feel quite relaxed and um, comfortable Bring to your mind the image of the thing that brings fear for you. Might be flying on an airplane. Might be meeting someone. Might be uh, performing as an artist or something like that. And when that situation comes up, it will bring fear along with it. That's the conditioning. Even when you think of it, even though it's not actually real, the fear will arise. The thing to do then is to keep working with the breathing and the relaxation to decondition that response. So even while holding the image, keep relaxing, breathing, relaxing, breathing, and soon you can have the image in your mind without a reaction to it. The image can be there, and there's still the sense of relaxation. The next time you think about actually doing that thing, there won't be as strong a reaction of fear. So in this way, just taking some of the charge off the pattern itself. Another approach that I found useful um, came out of my experience with a kind of therapy called co-counseling. And I know this is starting to be popular in England now as well. I don't know if it spread to other parts of Europe. And uh, in co-counseling, you take a series of classes with a group of other people where you learn the techniques of uh, this type of counseling. And then you get together once a week with someone from the class. And you take turns. First, one of you is the client, and they work on their uh, areas of difficulty, and you're the counselor, so you're there to provide support and suggestion. Then you turn around. They become the counselor, you become the client. And co-counseling emphasizes, in working with difficult emotions, this idea of discharge, that we become, to some extent, free from the emotion by discharging physically the feeling. Letting it, sort of letting it out, expressing it. And they say, for instance, if you're embarrassed, that the way to discharge it is through laughing. And if you're um, sad, the way to discharge it is through crying. And if you're afraid, they say, the way to discharge it is through shaking. So it kind of makes sense, you know, when fear comes up we feel this kind of shaky energy throughout the body. And what they say is, go with that. Really let yourself get into that shakiness and just let it take you over. Just shake with it. So at this time I was working uh, in California for an electronics company for Hewlett Packard and we had just brought out this really interesting new product. It was sort of the first handheld computer. Quite a revolutionary product. um, What 20 years ago filled a whole room with vacuum tubes. Um, at that time, we had brought down to something that could be held in the palm of your hand. So there was a lot of interest in the technology. And uh, I was asked to give a talk at a local college about it as a student. And at that time, I was not at all comfortable with public speaking. And the idea of talking, standing up in front of 35 people and giving a talk for 45 minutes filled me with fear, with nervousness. And so I said I would do it because I, I felt I should, but I really was not looking forward to it. So I had about a 45-minute uh, drive up the freeway to reach the college from where I worked. And as I was driving along, I was starting to feel nervous. Oh, God, got to stand up in front of all those people and talk. And um, I started to feel that shakiness, that lightness coming into my body. I said, well. You know, what does co-counseling say about this? They say to just get right into it, right? Okay. So I just really did. I was driving up the freeway and I just started to shake. So I was driving along at 70 miles an hour and just shaking like mad for the whole 45 minutes. I don't know what people thought who passed, me. <laughs> but um, I started to appreciate the humor of the situation while I was in it. So I'd shake for a while and I'd laugh for a while. And- and uh, so, so the talk actually went went very well. But also, in going over the the experience enough times and just going through the emotion, it just released it released that mental um, dread about it. So I I, I I do recommend shaking actually. If you're if you're really feeling fearful, just shake. Whether it's here or outside um, on the grounds or whatever, I. If you want to do it in town, I'd be a bit more cautious. (laughs) (laughs) We might get known as some strange religious cult known as the Shakers or something. But it does help. It does help. The last way of working, I'm, um, I'm always a little bit reluctant to talk about because it's so different from the rest of Vipassana practice. But. it's an approach that I, that I that I call getting tough with fear, and uh, I think actually that there there is a spiritual uh, precedent for it. I think that there's somewhere in the Chinese tradition of Buddhism, I've heard of this philosophy called the guest and the host, and basically it sort of it sort of comes down to the question of um, as you're living your life with this body. And this mind. Whose home is this, really? Who's the host here? Who really lives here? And if there are some guests that aren't particularly welcome who come in when they haven't been invited, and they hang around longer than they're welcome for, and they're a great inconvenience to the host, there's only one thing finally to do with such guests, and that is very firmly show them the door. And you have to, before you can do that, you have to really realize whose house is this, who's living here, and not being willing to be victimized any longer by these mindsets, just not being willing to take it. And uh, I came upon this um, quite spontaneously, actually, in my own practice. I was doing actually it was one of the month-long retreats that I mentioned. Uh, last last night or yesterday. Um, I was sitting here in England about seven years ago. I'd been practicing for a couple of years at that time. And in the course of this month-long retreat, some deep um, place of fear in me just got triggered. Something triggered off a lot of fear. And for several days during that retreat, I was just full of fear. No matter what I did or where I went, the fear just kept arising. And um, it was it was quite unpleasant. And I thought about all the things that people had told me to do with it. You know, you just watch it, just accept it, just experience it, and it just kept going on and on. And um, I was doing standing meditation. After this had gone on for about two and a half days, I was doing standing meditation, and I, I realized I was really getting sick of it. I was getting absolutely fed up with it. And I remember saying to myself right at that time, I said, fuck it. I said, I'd rather die than live like this. And I meant it. I was really angry at that time. I meant it. And that resolve broke the back of the fear. It just broke its back. And I could literally feel it draining out of my body into the ground. The fear just sort of drained out of me. And I didn't know at all that that was possible. I didn't know I had that kind of strength, but it was sort of like the fear had pushed me to a limit, to a limit of what I was willing to take. And at that limit, some deeper strength came up that could just deal with that fear totally. So I hope you never reach that limit. With fear in your own practice, not very pleasant, but if you do, to realize that we all have within us depths of strength and resolve and firmness that we don't usually touch, we don't usually tap into. Since that time, fear has come up a number of other times in my practice and in my life, but it's never had the hold on me again that that did. And so in that, in that real strong resolve, in that firm resolve, something changed in my relationship with people. Something changed between me and it, and um, it has never returned with that kind of strength again. Now, the reason I say I hesitate to recommend it is because it's in sort of the entire opposite direction from Vipassana. You know what this is about. This is about gentleness, receptivity, acceptance, passivity, uh, just ob- just observing, not interfering, you know, <laughs> <laughs> this is a completely different approach where you just realize, you, you take the situation in hand and you exert your will, you exert your will. But I think if we look into it, there actually are spiritual traditions that talk about this kind of approach. If you've read the books by carlos castaneda where he describes his uh, teachings from don juan the mexican indian shaman and man of knowledge they're often speaking about the um, way of the warrior in that book and over and over again don juan will put carlos in the situations that just call up the most incredible fears for him you know he'll tell him how much the the ally this strange a sort of demonic being wants to get to grips with him and wrestle him and then he'll send him out into the desert at night alone you're know, saying the allies waiting for you out there <laughs> That brought up carlos here at the end of one book he made him jump off a cliff <laughs> so finding through being pushed to these limits that warrior-like quality is Another spiritual tradition that has it is the, is the tradition of Rinzai Zen. Now Soto Zen, which is the school of Suzuki Roshi which I read from today, is very much like Vipassana. Soto Zen and Vipassana are very close. But Rinzai Zen, on the other hand, is more the warrior Zen in Japan. And it has this fierceness. I did a retreat with a Rinzai Zen master a number of years ago named Sasaki Roshi. And um, I must say, he's one of the most impressive individuals that I've ever met in my life. He still teaches, mostly in California. And he's a very impressive man. And he's everything that a Zen master is supposed to be. He's uh, funny. He's wise. He's uh, unflappable. And he can be extremely ruthless. You know, you come in for an interview with one of us, the teachers right and we're just all sort of gooey sentimentality right just warmth and compassion and all that <laughs> easy going stuff you go in for an interview with sasaki and he's, he doesn't hesitate to uh to put you in your place and uh some of his um some of his some of his comments are things like hmm, stupid answers or um Too much thinking, go away. And uh, he's often said about his uh, coming for interviews in his tradition, he says, when you come for Sanzen, which is what they call the interview situation, come prepared to kill or be killed. So, when you feel your practices at that stage, go see Sasaki Roshi. Excellent teacher. I want to just close with one story that illustrates the other end of the spectrum. We've talked quite a lot about fear, but also in in spiritual traditions, there's always the awareness of the possibility of the other extreme altogether, this state of real fearlessness, of total fearlessness, having overcome all forms of fear and trembling. And again, a story from the Zen tradition. In medieval Japan, there was in many ways a state of real lawlessness, and um, individual warlords with their bands of samurai would control neighboring territories, and often one would invade another, try to conquer it, then that warlord would regroup and try to take that territory back. So there was a lot of invading and fighting all over medieval Japan, and this one warlord had come into a certain area with his samurai, and nearby villagers heard they were coming, and they knew that if uh, these samurai came, they would all be put to death, because they were loyal to another warlord and his samurai, so they knew they would be put to death, so they all fled. And uh, just outside the village, there was a Zen monastery, and they also heard that the warlord was coming, and all the monks in the monastery also fled so that they wouldn't be put to death. Everyone left except the Zen master. And he just stayed in the monastery and went about his daily routine. He took his morning meal, he had a sitting, he cleaned up his bowl, (laughs) just living his life. And the warlord came into the village and he'd heard that everyone had left except this one Zen monk. And he was furious. He said, Who is this person who would not Run away from me. Who does he think he is anyway? I'm going to go out and see him. So he went straight away to the monastery with several of his samurai and he found the Zen master sitting on his zafu just calmly practicing his meditation. The samurai warlord draws his sword charges into the zendo and says You! He says Don't you know who I am? He says Don't you know? that I am one who could run you through with this sword without blinking an eye." And the Zen Master said, Is that so? He says, And do you know that I am one who can be run through with a sword without blinking an eye? <laughs> and at that, the samurai warlord placed his sword in front of the Zen Master, bowed to him, and asked to become his student the power of fearlessness. May all beings see into clinging. May all beings understand fear. May all beings live with fearlessness. Thank you for listening.